Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician, Dr. Robert Jackson, with his wife, Carlotta, and daughter, Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in. Welcome into More Than Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Jackson, and I have a very special guest uh, with me today, uh, Josh Kimbrell. Uh, Josh is a senator in the upstate of South Carolina. Uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's good to be back with you. I'm uh, happy to be here with you again, Doctor, and, um, uh, and and talking about these important issues. Yes, I am a South Carolina senator from Senate District 11, to Sparber County, and uh, honored to serve in the South Carolina Senate in that regard. And I uh, have a wife and two kids. We live in Bowling Springs, and uh, and my wife's a realtor, and I own a aviation company. So we're busy, busy people these days. Well, I bet you are. I bet you are. Well, I've invited Josh to come on today to talk a little bit about the Constitution. In fact, I've been teaching a Constitution class at my home for the last couple of weeks, and I've got four more weeks to go uh, educating a few folks uh, in my, I guess my legislative district would be the best way to describe it, about the Constitution. And uh, folks have been saying to me, Josh, why didn't I learn this 30 years ago? And so it's obvious that people have a dearth of knowledge about the Constitution. And because of that, I invited Josh to come and share with us information and answer a few questions about the Constitution. So let's just dive in, Josh, and and I'm going to ask a few questions and, and let him answer for our listening audience. Is that okay with you, Josh? That works for me. That'll work. All right. So here's my here's my first question. Why is the U.S. called a constitutional republic? You know, a lot of people refer to the U.S. as a democracy. And in fact, uh, President Bush even said we were attempting to spread democracy to Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Is Is he as confused as all the rest of the folks around us? Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of parts to that. I mean, I would start by saying uh, we'll, we'll take the last first there with President Bush. I, I don't think President Bush uh, is as confused as a lot of folks are as to what the structure of the country is. I think he understood it. But uh, that's, when he talks about spreading democracy, we are a democratic republic, a constitutional republic, of course, yes. But the element of democracy is that we get to vote uh, for our representatives. The difference, though, as you know, between a democracy and a republic it is significant. Our founders were very worried about the idea of a straight democracy. They didn't like the the idea of a straight democracy. And they they believed in a republic that was based on the rule of law. And actually, given that I did not go to seminary, but this is almost like a seminary uh, sort of almost semi-sermon, I guess I can give about this, that there are two root words for democracy and republic that I think are important to explaining the terms. And uh, democracy is, is two words in Greek, demos kratian, which means the rule of the people. And that sounds great, right? We all like the idea of, you know, we get to have a say in things, and we should. But uh, we'll explain why that can be bad in a moment. The word republic is from res publica, which means the rule of the public thing or the rule of law. And so I believe that certainly the consent of the governed matters. Our Constitution makes that clear, the concept of our national 
our uh, American system of government is predicated on the notion of the consent of the governed, which is a democratic element. But republic constrains that because in, I've heard it said before, a great illustration that I like is if you take two Western towns in the old the old West days like Dodge City and uh, and there's two different sheriffs in the two towns and there's two systems of government. One town is a straight democracy. The other is a republic. And in one in, in both towns, a horse uh, goes missing. And people will say, well, there's a horse thief in our midst. And so in the town that is a straight democracy, this guy, what is call him Tom Brown for the sake of argument. Old Tom Brown, he, they, a lot of people circle the wagon and say, Tom's the one that stole that horse. And the sheriff goes before the townspeople and says, let's take a vote. Do you all think that Tom stole the horse? And 51% of the people said, yes, he did. They hang him. Now, that's, the end of, that's the end of Tom. They later find out Tom didn't do it, but he's already dead. But in the in the city that has a republic, a Republican form of government, the same thing happens. We'll use Tom Brown again. In that city, the other Tom Brown is accused of stealing the horse and uh, the sheriff gets everybody together. Instead of calling for a vote of the people, they have a constitution there. It says, here's how we're going to try this guy and we're going to analyze evidence and we can't arrest him without probable cause. And in the time they're doing the investigation, they find out that Tom Brown didn't really steal that horse and he's released. Now, obviously, the republic protected that man's rights far better than a straight democracy did. And I think that's a good illustration that a, a republic does have an element where people get to vote for their elected representatives. But at the end of the day, uh, neither the elected representatives nor the people as a whole are the ones that are uh, ultimately making the decisions. We, we do it on a rule of law basis and the Constitution is the supreme law. That's exactly right. And, it's, and it protects the individual. And, and, and you know, we as individuals— in America, prize the fact that the rule of law protects us, and and people are always crying out for their rights. And when they say that, they're crying out for their constitutional rights, and they don't want their constitutional right to be violated because they understand that the Constitution protects them as an individual, and it protects them against mob rule, a mobocracy, as some people call it. Which leads me to my next question, which you've almost eloquently answered already. What's the difference between the terms rule of law and majority rule? Well, exactly. Just to my example, the horse thief again, there's under the rule of law, there's a governing standard that even the elected officials or the majority of the people uh, can't violate. And that goes back to the notion you just posed of protecting one's individual rights and, and protecting those God-given rights, or as our founders would understand it, natural rights, which uh, the, dec the Declaration says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So they, they understood that the government wasn't the grantor of rights, but merely a instrument to guarantee, to protect those rights, to act as a guarantor of sorts. And uh, and that is interesting. I know we don't have time to probably go into this too much, but when you say people want their rights, I don't think a lot of people even know what that means. I mean, you, we hear all the time, well, it's my right to have free health care. No, it isn't. Or it's my or it's my right to uh, ab abort my unborn child. No, it isn't. Because a right is a freedom you get to exercise without the consent of anybody else but God. And in those two examples I just gave regarding health care and abortion, those violate some else's rights. And so uh, we have to define what a right is in this moment in our society. Yes, sir. You're exactly right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> All right. Well, here's my third question. And, and I think I sent it to you 
uh, in advance, and I typed it up wrong, but the question should read, what was the opening statement in the preamble, and why is that opening statement to the preamble of the Constitution such a revolutionary statement? Well, I mean, of course, it says we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union and uh, promote justice, domestic tranquility, and ensure the the, the whole preamble of the Constitution, again, predicated with the idea of we, the people, which is revolutionary in the sense that every every government up until the Constitution of the United States established this country, uh, the the sovereign power, as it were, resided in a an emperor or a monarch, a king or queen or or, or some autocrat. Uh, the, the the folks were never people were never considered the source of governmental sovereignty, and the the, the Constitution of the United States doesn't pledge allegiance to a king or queen or emperor, but it, instead says that we, the people of the United States, in other words, the sovereignty is the people of the country uh, ourselves. And that's, that's a very revolutionary concept. It, it seems more commonplace today than it did 250 years ago, but um, it, it's, still not the, it's still the exception to world history, not the rule of world history, that, that the sovereignty of a nation, that the power of a government would rest in the people themselves and I do fear that as we go down this road of of growth of bureaucracy and growth of unelected bureaucrats making decisions or courts that are trying to legislate from the bench that we lose that element. But the fundamental principle is we the people rule. That's exactly right. And, and you know, we have grown up in America and we're accustomed to the whole notion that that we the people are the ones that grant the right to rule to the government. When I've traveled overseas and I have been to lots of countries where there is a, a monarch or a king or a tyrant that rules, the people there find it totally foreign, totally alien when we speak of a country where the people are the source of the power. And they grant to the government the right to rule over them and can take back from the government the right to rule over them. That's a totally alien and revolutionary thought to people in places where I've been in the Middle East or in the Far East, uh, in, in other parts of the world. They just cannot comprehend that in America the, the source of power resides in the people. Now, you're correct. Our government has burgeoned so in size that we, the people, feel like we're small and powerless. And we feel like our government officials no longer listen to us. And I think that's our own fault. We have allowed, I call it creepinism. <laughs> our government has gradually, like kudzu, crept so much in power and size that we feel like it's... Uh, Overreach is so great that we, we cannot control the government any longer. Well, I think people f feel that way. And I think to some extent that I mean, certainly it's true that the government's burgeoned in size and unelected bureaucrats have taken over. One of the great things I focused on even in my tenure in office thus far is restraining the power of these bureaucrats and unelected officials. Because, I mean, w w if you lose freedom, it's, you don't get it back without a, without a fight, frankly. And and look at what's happening in the streets of Cuba. You referred to other countries around the world. Just look no further than 90 miles south of Florida. I mean, you've got Cubans right now trying their best to assert 
uh, right, natural rights against the tyrannical totalitarian government that's ruled that island for 60 years. And uh, unfortunately, and I, I support the Cuban people, want them to win. Uh, what, what we're learning, though, is you might vote your way into socialism, but you're going to have to shoot your way out. That's right. And, uh, and, and that's what we're seeing in Cuba right now. The only way that that revolution against the Cuban communist government succeeds is if enough people are willing to literally lay down their lives and in support of that movement for freedom. So freedom is a very precious thing that we have to protect and cherish and, and fight for before you lose it. Because if you lose it, getting it back is awfully hard. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Yeah, that's true. All right. My next question is this. What, what is meant by some who speak of a living constitution? Yeah, of course, that's a that's one of the favorite phrases of the left of the left in this country, particularly liberal jurists. I literally heard a, a confirmation hearing in the Judiciary Committee, U.S. U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, just a few days ago, where one of the current president's uh, nominees was put forward to one of the appellate courts, federal appellate courts, and that very concept was being debated. And of course, their assertion on the left is their their definition of a living document is it lives long enough to do what they tell it to do. Uh, that, that's their view of it is, is that it can be interpreted in such a way that it supports things that aren't there. Take note, one of the greatest examples of the last 15 years has been the afford, the so-called Affordable Care Act. It's, it's not affordable, but the point is the Affordable Care Act was was rammed through by using the Commerce Clause because it says the government can do that, which is necessary and proper to promote commerce and interstate commerce between the states. Well, that's not what the founders meant. They didn't expect that that was going to be used to force everybody to buy a subpar health care plan that they didn't want to buy. But, if, but of course, the, the leftist ideology is it's a living document, so we'll read into it what we want. I'm an originalist. I'm a textualist. I believe that the Constitution means what it says and says what it means, and you don't get to go and rewrite it to fit convenient liberal judicial narratives. But that's what's happened. And, and I think when you hear the phrase living uh, constitution, you should grab your wallet, run for the hills, and try to protect your rights. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's just a, a, a construct of the, the left who wants to make the Constitution say whatever they want it to say and allow them well, to o- do... only when they're in power, though. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. only when they're in power. Because they, they, the funny thing is, they think the Constitution, I, I think there must be some kind of zombie for them, because it lives when they're in power, and then they want it to be absolutely textual whenever they're not in power. Yep. And so uh-huh. it's very funny how that works. Their living Constitution only lives every four to eight years. Uh-huh. You're, I've, I've noticed the very same thing. You're very keen in observing that. <laughs> All right, now... Let's let's talk about something that's very personal to me. I hear my doctor friends complain all the time about federal overreach as the tentacles of the federal government control every aspect of medical practice, from the drugs that we prescribe to the CT scans that we order. What does enumerated powers mean, and how did the federal government get such unlimited powers? Well, those two, that question actually ties back to your last one, but the enumerated powers are powers that are specifically uh, written out in the Constitution, specifically delegated to the federal government by the states. I like to remind people, and particularly being that I serve in the South Carolina Senate, that uh, the states created the federal government, not the, vice, not the other way around. The federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government and gave certain specific powers, enumerated authorities, 
to that federal government, and they're not supposed to go outside that box. I mean, the, the Constitution is not written to restrain the behavior of our citizens. It's written to restrain the behavior of our government, particularly the federal government. And and so to your point about how we've gotten so far outside that box is exactly what the last question was about. The notion of a, a living constitution we, we have allowed. And I mean, I say we because at some point the people have to elect people to the Congress and and to the Senate, the House and the Senate, and even the state legislatures that are willing to push back against judges that rewrite the law willy-nilly and fire bureaucrats that trample their rights. But what we've seen is that the courts have interpreted the Constitution more and more broadly. Bureaucrats have uh, in, taken more and more power into themselves because the legislative bodies have allowed that to happen. And so we're way beyond what the founders envisioned the scope of the federal government would be. I mean, uh, there's nothing in there, for example, about marriage. Marriage is not a federal issue. So we have a federal court defining marriage for 50 states. That's blatantly unconstitutional. That should be left to the individual states or health care policy, since that's specifically to your question. There's nowhere in the Constitution of the United States where the federal government has any power or purview over the notion of uh, medical care or prescribing medications or courses of treatment. And yet they've done exactly that. So I do think we do have to, as states, start pushing back uh, pretty aggressively against the federal government in this regard and saying, we're not going to uh, allow you to give us unfunded mandates. We're not going to let you come out here and tell us what exactly to do in every instance. We're going to say no. And we're going to have to reestablish that federalist balance between the, the states and the federal government. Otherwise, to your point, we're going to see more and more encroachment beyond those enumerated powers into areas that the Constitution uh, never granted the federal government to go into. And the founders could have never envisioned the federal government would uh, would try to stick its nose. All right. Well, now, the, here's here's the sticky wicket. When the federal government gives grants to the states, for example, with, with Medicare and Medicaid and things like that, that to them gives them the opportunity to say to the doctors, for example, you have to prescribe these this uh, slate of medications because you're accepting medical funding from the federal government in the form of Medicare payouts. How do we as a state push back against federal funding for schools, for medical care, for every facet of our society that receives federal dollars? Because once we accept those federal dollars, it comes with strings attached. How do we cut ourselves off from the federal funding that has the federal strings attached? Well, we're likely to have that very debate again in September or October of this year because we've got a whole new tranche of federal money coming down for the part of this COVID relief package and, and then some of this stimulus money that's related to the uh, infrastructure bill. And look, I'm studying. I'm, I'm, I've already told colleagues and I'm preparing for this battle. I, I understand my fiduciary responsibility to my constituents, whom I represent in South Carolina, that I need to be sure that they're getting uh, what they what they deserve and need with regard to their taxes being paid in. However, whenever we get this stimulus money, if it's going to be fixing roads, a one time thing, okay, we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll do that. If it's going to be p- patching potholes in eighty five, we'll do that. If they're going to come in and tell us, and we expect they're probably going to try to do this, they come in and say, "Here's three hundred million dollars for education," but 
you're going to teach uh, critical race theory or here's $300 million for education. We want you to teach uh, our version of common core math or we're going to teach a revisionist version of U.S. history. I'm going to say no to that. And so I'm asking colleagues of mine that if there are federal programs, federal funds that we're going to receive even this year regarding uh, education or transportation or healthcare or anything else that forces us to change our existing state policies or our values, then we're going to resist that. Or if they give us a, uh, a some money for a three-year, two years of funding for a five-year program and say, okay, for the first two years, we're going to pay for it. The next three years, y'all got to pay for it. We're not doing that because I'm not willing to put our taxpayers on the hook. So I think to your point, we're going to have to say no, and you're going to have to have your state legislature and senators like me say we're not willing to accept that money. We'll go without it before we're going to sacrifice our sovereignty and allow more federal encroachment than we already have. I pray that your tribe will increase. <laughs> I think you're going to see a surprising number this time. I think things have changed so much. Uh, if you look back 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, when this debate happened about the Stimulus Act in 2009, uh, Governor Sa- then Governor Sanford, before he did his horrible hiking trip, you know, he tried to resist federal some of that federal money that did exactly what I just described regarding funding for a couple of years and then making the state pay for it for additional years. And he lost because the legislature wouldn't stand up back then. A lot of seats have changed since then. Circumstances have changed. And a lot of my colleagues are deeply worried about all the, what you just described as a encroachment on sovereignty of the states. And I think you'll see a lot of people push back now. Well, I sure hope so, Josh. I, I really do, because it, it, it complicates my life as a physician. Uh, it complicates the life of businessmen all across our state. It complicates the life of educators in our state. I've talked to Christian educators who are afraid to speak up against CRT because they're afraid they'll lose their jobs or their tenure or their promotions uh, because CRT is foisted upon them in the school system. You you know, you've heard all this. And uh, so it's just, it's just the, when we take federal money, if it has strings attached, it, it hamstrings us as free-thinking individuals. Well, my, my, yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, here's my next question is, how, how often do you, do you observe legislators attempting to pass legislation in violation of or without regard to our state constitution, not just the federal constitution, but our state constitution? I think it happens more than we would like, but but I do feel like one of the great things we have in South Carolina, in South Carolina Senate, and I can't speak to other state legislatures because I've never served in others, and and, and I don't know. Uh, I think Washington doesn't have the same checks that we do in this regard. One thing that we do that I think our listeners should be encouraged by is we have a very good staff, the Senate Clerk's Office, that helps us with drafting of legislation. We do not draft legislation that doesn't expressly have constitutional authorization. So if I go and say, hey, I want to do I want to change the tax code or I want to work on this education issue. We actually have law clerks that work for us who will go through the the code books and the Constitution and say, here's where you're just here's where we believe this bill uh, can can be justified constitutionally and legally. And I have literally reworked entire pieces of legislation to fit uh, in more comfortably into those constitutional constraints and fit more comfortably into the existing code. So I, I think that it happens less often, it, 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 at least in our state, at the state Senate level, 
than it may in other legislative bodies. And, and that should be encouraging. We need more of that nationally because I think most of the abuse of the Constitution is happening federally. And I don't feel that they're really trying to check. I, I, I honestly, and I, I don't mean this to be funny or cute, but I would be really surprised how many members of Congress could actually pass a Constitution exam. If you gave them an exam on the Constitution, I doubt very many could. I think because you're most right. I think don't care. I agree, and I, I I wish we could get them to come to my house and take the Constitution class that my folks are taking right now. I think it would be very informative for our U.S. Congress. Uh, it would be a challenge to be, them. Even at the state level, and I don't look. I have a lot of brilliant colleagues, so I'm not criticizing anybody particularly. I don't know for sure. Uh, I, I don't know how many of my colleagues have actually read the national and state constitution, the Federalist Papers. I hope the majority. I have. I will tell you, as, as it stands for Senator Kimbrell here, so Spartanburg listeners, can, hopefully this gives you some comfort. I have read the national and state constitution several times over. I've read the Federalist Papers and actually I'm in the process of rereading them again right now. And I think it should be required reading for everybody who serves in public office. Sure, uh, sure. Particularly if you're going to be in a legislative position or, or an executive position. And one thing that I'm encouraged by that we passed this past legislative session here in South Carolina, I'll leave you with this encouraging thought, is we passed the REACH Act, which now requires beginning in in, uh, in grade school, beginning in, in really high school, junior high school and high school, we are now requiring every single student in South Carolina has to pass proficiency, demonstrate proficiency in study, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Federalist Papers. We haven't had oh, that before. Great. You've had you've had to have uh, pass a government econ class, but now we're spe- we're going to specifically require every student who graduates in South Carolina with a high school diploma has got to read the Declaration, the Constitution, and all the Federalist Papers and pass exams to that effect. And I think that will help uh, greatly in terms of knowledge of our system of government. Now, is there also a requirement for that at the college level? There is if it's a state-funded college. Private schools don't have the same restrictions. Um, but if, but University of South Carolina, Clemson, Citadel, uh, any state school has to do that. But every single uh, public school and private school at the high school level has to. So uh, whether you go to college or not, you're going to get it in those four years of high school for sure. And then if you go to a, state, a state-funded college or university, you'll get it again. Excellent. 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 Well, Josh, I just want to thank you for your time. I thank you for your expertise and knowledge of the Constitution. And I know that the folks in your senatorial district are delighted to know that they've got a a gentleman of your caliber who's committed to the Constitution and who knows the Constitution. And I I trust that the folks in uh, your district will be praying for you and supporting you. Uh, is there any specific piece of legislation that you could be promoting this next year? we got about a minute and a half left. Well, two big ones that I'm worried about. We are going to work on a permanent uh, prohibition against critical race theory being taught in South Carolina. We're working on that. And in the next week or so, you're going to hear from me. I, I, I'm going to be proposing one of the largest overhauls of the tax code in at least the last 30 years in South Carolina. So I'm worried about those issues predominantly CRT. We got to work on that and we need to work on reforming our tax code to let businesses and individuals keep more of what they earn and get the government out of their business as much as we can. Man, that's powerful. Well, listen, we'll be right behind you. We'll be supporting you. And you let us know if there's anything in particular that we need to do to get behind you to uh, support those kinds of legislation. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information on how to contact the Jackson family, to schedule a speaking engagement, or how to obtain Dr. Jackson's books, go to jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast was produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions.